Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and oh, it's nice to hear that groovy theme tune once more. You may have noticed we've been away for a couple of months. This was so we could concentrate on our new podcast, Kino Quickies. This is a show based around live screenings of 1930s quota quickie films at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, South East London. We really enjoyed making the show, and I would encourage you to check it out at kinoquickies.com. But the theme music, I'm afraid, is just not as groovy as this one. Here's a little burst of it. See what I mean? Ah, that's much better. We will be returning to the keynote for another season of screenings and podcasts in the autumn. Please do come. But in the meantime, it's very nice to be back in the pre-gentrified mean streets of old Soho. Talking of Soho, and why would I not be, the film we're talking about in this episode is It Happened in Soho from 1948. Directed by the mysterious Frank Chisnell and made apparently on a shoestring budget of Russian stamps and bottle tops, this flimsy film screams post-war austerity. But despite that, it boasts quite a major star. Heading up the cast is Richard Stinker Murdoch, who in 1948 was one of the biggest names on British radio. He'd come to prominence in the late 1930s as Arthur Askey's sidekick in the BBC's hugely popular comedy variety show Bandwagon. And at the time It Happened in Soho was released, he was enjoying success in his second big radio hit, Much Binding in the Marsh. To talk about It Happened in Soho, I roped in stand-up comedian, podcaster and broadcasting historian Paul Carenza. You can hear my conversation with Paul in the second half of the show. And before that, in keeping with the theme of BBC radio comedies from days gone by, I met up with the radio comedy writer Mark Brissenden to talk about the Paris studios on Lower Regent Street. The Paris, as it was called, closed down in 1995. But for nearly 50 years, virtually every BBC comedy you can think of was made there. Mark had the pleasure and honour of working there in the final decade or so of that much-loved venue's existence. Button up your overcoat when the wind is free. Take good care 
yourself, you belong to me. Take an apple every day. As a Soho Bites listener, you are by very definition a with it Hepcat. So you will know that this tight vocal harmony group is the Fraser Hayes Four, the singing group who provided the musical interludes for two popular radio comedies of the 1960s, Beyond Our Ken and Round the Horn, both of which were, of course, recorded at the Paris studios. Other shows recorded there over the years included I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Goon Show, The Navy Lark, Weekending, The News Hudlines, Just a Minute, and my particular favourite, Take It From Here, which launched the career of the absolutely fabulous June Whitfield. And it wasn't just comedy. The Paris was home to all sorts of entertainment shows. Dramas, readings, discussions, live bands, including Beatles, Bowie and the Bonzos. And of course, the fantastic Radio 1 Club had its London branch there from 1968 to 1973. Yes, it's Radio 1 Club. And the beat goes on. Happening live from now till two. And then in 1995, the Paris studios closed down. And if you were to walk down Lower Regent Street today, as I did earlier this week, you wouldn't even know it had been there. There's not even a plaque. One person who was very familiar with the smoky bowels of the Paris is Mark Brissenden, who began working there as a jobbing comedy writer in the early 1980s. Mark was on Soho Bites back in episode 24 when we discussed the film Something in the City, and I know him to be a bit of a comedy geek. We arranged to meet up outside the building in which I thought the Paris was located. Wikipedia tells me it was number 12 Lower Regent Street, but that didn't look right somehow when I got there. Not for the first time, I was confused. I am outside the strict borders of Soho in uh, Lower Regent Street. Well, I thought it was called Lower Regent Street. It now seems to be called Regent Street St. James, which is a bit weird. Is that a new thing? No, God. I'm um, taking the Lord's name in vain there is Mark Brissenden. He's the guest for today. I was just going to say, because I've only just noticed that, and I've, been, uh, and I've always called it Lower Region Street. I think it, it always was, was called Lower Region Street. Well, anyway, we're definitely not in Soho. We're in, we're, we are in St. James, to be fair, and it's very posh. And we're outside Rex House, which is now a pure gym. But we're here because it wasn't always a pure gym. Mark Brissenden. Tell me why we're here. Are you here to sign me up for some... Uh, <laughs> some uh, what's it? I'm just waiting for a bypasser to talk, come and do a survey with us or something. Right. That's what, but no, uh, well, because the Peel Gym now is it used to be the Paris Studios, a BBC where we used to record an awful lot of uh, BBC light entertainment uh, comedy programmes uh, uh, from post-war to the mid-1990s. I was personally involved with the news headlines and weekending and Flywheel Shyster and Flywheel and other things that we recorded. Uh, down there, I, I mean, any 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 name that you want to mention in the history of British comedy, past, present, and future, will have worked down there up until 1995. And then in 1995, it was brutally shut down. I think the BBC just lost the, lost the um, lease, frankly. They okay. It was it was one of those things where they didn't decide that oh because they lost I believe they lost the lease and so they moved up to Broadcasting House which was sort of in the earliest days of its regeneration and this you know spaceship that you see today okay well let's um, it's a bit noisy here and yeah. people keep bumping into us so let's wander right. oh my god <laughs> 
Let's wander off. Yeah. To the well, pub. if you see any old photos of, or there's a movie called The 20 Questions Murder Mystery, which is a film set around the long-running TV series 20 Questions. There was an establishing stock shot of the Paris studios there with the queue standing around, and they used to queue round the corner into Carlton Street. Right, which is where we are now. And here, this grilling here, this was effectively the back door of the Paris. It had a kind of goods lift. There was no... Um, any sort of disability uh, awareness about the place. There was, it was just down a very steep flight of stairs when you got in there. And so if people did come in, occasionally people did come in in wheelchairs and stuff, there was a kind of a goods lift to take them down. And now we're walking past this St. James Market Pavilion and this curvy, curvy building on Norris Street with the Beau Brommel Public House. And this is where the captain's cabin used to be, which was the official pub of the Paris, basically. And there was a nice little Italian restaurant as well. I think Gianelli's or, Gianelli's or something like that. This is part of the complete redevelopment of the area. Because it was a slum before, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> and wasn't there a stockpot here? There was a, a stockpot there. Oh. <laughs> there were two. There was a stockpot and I think it was a Western kitchen. kitchen over there, yeah. Welcome to two old men reminiscing <laughs> yeah. about buildings that have gone. Okay, let's switch off while we're going yeah. to the pub and we'll settle in. Here we go. This is London. The heart of London. Piccadilly Circus with Eros shooting his arrow through the swirling traffic of Regent Street, past the shops and the cinemas with their waiting queues. And here is a queue waiting outside a cinema which never shows a film. For this is the home of many of the nation's most popular broadcasts, the Paris Cinema of the BBC. So we've come to somewhere that's slightly quieter now, thankfully, so we can uh, we can talk in a civilised way. So um, before we started recording earlier on, you were talking about the history of the Paris Studios and how it became a BBC building. Could you, could you, could you go through that? It's interesting because <clears throat> I know that the, the government acquired it in '39, obviously when the war broke out for recording, but it didn't become a BBC building until 1946, straight after the war. And previously it had, it had been a cinema. The Paris Cinema is what it was opened as, and it and acquired the name of the Paris Cinema simply because it showed French movies. So it was, you know, already set up to record. Obviously, you've never been there. It's a basement cinema, and this was a basement recording studios. So it was safer from the from the Blitz. And I went to a show that they called a Farewell to the Paris, which was when they closed down the Paris Studios in 1995, and they had a huge cast of people who'd worked there from that era to that. And I do remember Maurice Denham, who was uh, in Itmar, one of the original cast members of that, and Molly that's, Weir. It's, it's that man again. Yeah, that's a famous it. wartime comedy. Yeah. And Molly Weir, who was in, uh, has been loads of modern audiences would know her as the Flash lady or from... Yeah, Rent-A-Ghost. Rent-A-Ghost. But also, um, <coughs> she was also something in the city. Yeah, and there you go. And she turns up here again because she was also a maid in a famous sitcom called Life with the Lions. Was that recorded at Paris? Yeah, and, okay. and I, recall, I recall them talking about wartime recordings. Down them, sit, you know, literally with the piano player sitting down with a tin hat on and actually sitting under the piano with his hands up. But, <laughs> but it really came into its own you know, in post-war when the BBC took it over and they started to do much binding in the marsh again with our star Richard Murdoch. Yeah, so that, that was his... Well, he starts off with Bandwagon and he's quite famous for Men for the Ministry, but much binding in the marsh was his big, big hit, wasn't he, it? First, because it was with Kenneth Horne as well and they both met in the Air Force during the war. And Riding in the marsh. I must say, I'm glad that this is over. At much riding in the marsh. If only we could rest, we'd be in clover. 
I tell you what, let's make the others come here and rehearse. I only hope the whole thing doesn't go from bad to worse. So, Costa, yes, Dudley, sir. let's have the second verse. And much And that was the great thing about the, the Paris, because then obviously that led on all to things like Educated Archie and Hancock and the, the goons came down there. I mean, if you want to see it, probably because they recorded the last goon show ever down there and so that's actually recorded a TV recording of the Paris studios so, uh, so you can actually see at much binding in the marsh at last the two of us can now get started I think I'll catch the bus and go to Spagthorpe for a show but Mr Horn and Mr Murdoch mightn't let you go I'd like to see them stop me What's that? yes sir can I no at much binding in the marsh at much binding in the marsh it's comforting that clothes are off the ration. Tiddlimpompom. That much driving <laughs> in the mouse. We'll now be dressed up in the latest fashion. Miss Risco's gone to Blackett's stores to go through all their stock. The fur-lined trousers I have bought will give you quite a shock. I'm going to cast all care aside and buy a second sock. That much driving <laughs> in the mouse. Last verse. That much. So what, what show did you work on there? Well, I worked on quite a few. I mean, the first one I worked on was Weekending, hang on, and I was writing sketches for that. I also worked on a show called The News Hudlines, which was Radio 2's topical comedy show of the day, featuring, curiously enough, Roy Hudd, yeah. and also had June Whitfield and Chris Emmett with the cast. There were a lot of other things, other sort of, there were pilots and one-off things. Obviously, they did everything down there. The News Quiz was down there. They had a fantastic atmosphere down there, and it had a, it had a full-time crew down there who were the in-house team of sound recordists, studio managers. So they were there the whole time and all sorts of shows came in. But he used to have a little kind of hatch-in-the-wall type cafe where, you know, Lulu would uh, dispense toasted cheese sandwiches. And Lulu? I think that's, yeah, isn't it? I think it was her, her name. Did she she'd give you a sandwich and go, where? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, a but different Lulu, the, maybe. See, this is the thing, uh, the BBC I caught sort of the end of in the early days still had the kind of tea trolley in the afternoon right. type thing. You know, it, it, it was, um, we were using manual typewriters still. That much finding in the marsh. We are out to help restock the country's larder. The vicar's nimble fingers now some extra tasks have found. For seizing opportunities, he's always been renowned. He sits and dances bed socks while the place is going round. At much riding in the marsh, how'd you get there? Much riding in the marsh. Good old goose phrase. At much The lovely thing about the Paris was it was because of all these other shows that had been recorded down there from the goons onwards and if you're a big great most of the people that worked in comedy and liked it were huge comedy buffs you know Milligan and the goons and people like that were <coughs> our gods if you like and Hancock and all that and you could feel their presence there there was a vibe you know there's a lovely to be in the same space and some of them were the I mean because you worked with June Whitfield you said well this is it and I mean she was a, an original I have to admit I have to admit my first ever gag thing first thing I ever got broadcast it was performed by June Whitfield oh. at the news headlines and I thought yeah she's, she's from the bullet down the sketch <laughs> amazing the Hancock yeah but yeah, you could sort of walk because they had photographs, of course, of the greats on the on the on the walls and stuff. Like you walk around, but yeah, no, you felt as if like you know you were walking in there in the footsteps of these. Did you ever want to grab these people and say, "What was it like back in the olden days?" Oh, like well, I'm doing to you now, in fact. Sort of, but I never kind of 
I'm trying to think because I met Milligan. Once we were doing this show called um, Flywheel Shaston Flywheel, like yeah. I mentioned, and he was a big, huge Marx Brothers fan. He loved Groucho Marx. And when a friend of mine, Michael Poynton, was doing a documentary about the goons, and he went down to interview Spike, and curiously enough. It, uh, the producer, Stuck Max, the producer of Flywheel, was the same guy, and they recorded. And, and and Spike just wanted to know he wanted to work with the Marx Brothers before he died, and so he wanted to. So he wanted to. So he asked if he could be in Flywheel. Shall I do Flywheel? So he obviously, you know, you found him a little part. Can't find him a little part. <laughs> he, was, he was okay, you know. But then, and uh, yeah, so but he was he was quite so something. He was a little. I wanted to sort of chat to him more, but he just wanted to come in and do the do that sort of job and stuff like that so it could be could be a little fractious could spike you know what more can he sometimes he sort of say but yeah no he was fantastic in the performance and and, and apart from an interview he gave on the farewell to the paris show that was the last time he was at the paris studios that was the last you know proper you know recorded comedy show he was in my thanks to mark brisenden for coming on the show again and for sharing his memories of the paris studios when we met up, he actually brought along a couple of pictures, including a running order for Farewell to the Paris, the gala show that closed the Paris back in 1995. And I've put those on the show notes for this episode. That's episode 34. You can see those pictures, along with some other info about Mark and the Paris, at the usual place, SohoBitesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. There's a well-known phrase with which I'm sure you're familiar, all mouth and no trousers, which basically means promising a lot than failing to deliver the goods. I don't want to be mean to 1948's It Happened in Soho because I sort of kind of quite like it a bit in a way, but I can't help feeling that by including the word Soho in the title, they're attempting to ascribe to it an edginess and a risque appeal that it just doesn't have. The film pays a lot of lip service to the reputation of Soho as a place of crime, prostitution, artists, drinkers, immigrants, spivs, lost souls, itinerants and political radicals, and it presents Soho as a kind of hinterland that, once entered, is difficult to leave, but we hardly ever actually see any of it. All these characteristics of the area are just talked about or alluded to. It's a textbook case of tell not show. Most of the action takes place inside Angelo's, an all-night Italian cafe with those classic Czech tablecloths and bentwood chairs. The film starts, though, with some nighttime footage of real Soho, taken from a moving vehicle, or at least I assume it's Soho, because that's what it says on the tin, but it's so dark, all we can actually see is blobs of light jiggling around on a black screen. And then... Help! Police! A desperate woman screams from an upstairs window into the street below. What's required now is a swift, robust, efficient response 
from a dynamic, proactive police force. Yes, yes. Go to 50 Lavelle Street, Soho area. A woman reported murdered. Yes, that's right. Okay. Hello. Casualty section? Send an ambulance immediately to 50 Lavelle Street. Yes. Quick as you like. Emergency call. Well, it's good to know the Met's finest are on the case. Should be wrapped up in no time. Somebody who is on the case is Bill Scott. He's not an officer of the law, though. He's a muckraking journalist whose beat is Soho. He's played by the star of the film, Richard Murdoch. Scott, where the devil have you been? Now, listen, I've just had a tip that a girl's been strangled in Soho. Try and get a picture. Remember, we've got two million readers and they're all morbid. By the way, was she pretty? She was an absolute smasher. Oh, yes, there are stacks of photographs. The bedroom was tastefully papered with pin-ups. Oh, we'll have an exclusive, all right. I swiped the best one. She was lying on the beach with just a suggestion of bathing costume. Don't forget that while you're sleeping peacefully at your desk, I shall be haunting the scene of the crime. Goodbye. We're now introduced to the wider cast of characters. Firstly, we meet Angelo, the wise, all-seeing, all-knowing cafe owner, played by Paul Demel. He invites Bill and us to look at the faces of his customers. All of them, he says, are respectable people, although we're clearly supposed to imagine that they're anything but. The camera travels from face to face and each one looks as though they've been found on the central casting website using the filter hashtag dodgy. And then into these surroundings that we're supposed to imagine are very seedy but aren't, walks Susan Marsh, played by Patricia Rain, who is immediately befriended by Bill. She seems much too nice and respectable to be here in nasty old Soho. So what's going on? I'm awfully sorry, but, well, this is my first visit to Soho, and, you know, it's, it's rather... Yes, it is rather, isn't it? <laughs> Tonight of all nights, especially. You see, the thing was, I was taken to a reunion party, and it, it wasn't a great success, and one of the boys said that we'd go to a club, but it was rather a sordid sort of club, and he got a bit nasty when I wouldn't stay. Oh, that wasn't nice of him, was it? I hope you managed to catch him a glancing blow with the bar stool on the way out. <laughs> well, I'd like to. But tell me, why did you say tonight of all nights? Oh, a girl was strangled a few hours ago, about three streets away. Oh. Nasty business. Innocent, naive and a stranger to the goings-on of Soho, Susan becomes chummy with three more Soho types. There's the wily old copper, Inspector Carp, played by Henry Oscar. He's of the give them a clip around the ear and send them on their way school of policing. Then there's Paul Sayers, played by John Bailey. He was a medical student, but packed it all in once Soho got his claws into him to live the life of a penniless artist sitting around in Soho sketching people. And finally, there's Julie, a weary and bitter yet beautiful prostitute played by the only other biggish name in the film, Eunice Gayson, who a few years later went on to star in the first two Bond films. If you'll take my advice, you'll not only get out of Soho, but you'll stay out. What? Just the advice an older sister would give you, if you had one. Yes, but I'm older than you, surely. Age isn't everything. I've seen what hanging around Soho does to people. Look at me. And look at Sayers. Sayers? What's wrong with him? Nothing much. Just that he's lost any ambition he ever had and turned into a sponger who hides his self-pity by pretending to be superior. Yes, but what about Bill Scott? Soho hasn't hurt him. You don't meet men like him every day. I should know. I've met plenty who were different. Yes, but if you hate it so much, why don't you get out? I will one day. Soho's beaten a lot of people, but it's not going to beat me. So there's been a murder, another murder happens, another murder nearly happens, 
The goodies beat the baddies, and it's all done and dusted in well under an hour, 52 minutes long, the film is. I did attempt to do some research into the director of It Happened in Soho, Frank Chisnell, but he proved to be very elusive. He set up a production company called Frank Chisnell Productions, but only really directed four films, none of which made much of an impression, and the bulk of his career was spent working for Movie Tone News. There's actually a documentary-style montage sequence in the middle of the film in which Bill and Susan go out and about, exploring the pubs of Soho, and it has the feel of a movie tone or British Pathé short about Soho nightlife. It's the only bit of the film that has any vitality, and it appears that Frank Chisnell was a lot more comfortable working in this style. As I mentioned earlier, Richard Stinker Murdoch, we'll get to that nickname later, would have been known to audiences at the time from his radio appearances, and I think I spotted a knowing nod to this when Bill calls Angelo a silly little cafe owner. I think this is a reference to his character in Bandwagon, who would sometimes call Arthur Askey a silly little man. But maybe I'm trying to read too much into it. I do feel like I'm casting around for something, anything to say about this film. It's actually quite hard to find a lot to say because it's just so insubstantial. I was therefore a bit concerned when I first approached my guest that we might run out of things to say about the film. That guest is Paul Carenza, who as well as being a stand-up comedian and a comedy writer, is also the creator of the epic British Broadcasting Century podcast. This monster of a podcast is covering the 100-year history of broadcasting in the UK in granular detail. So granular, in fact, that when I last checked, the show was approaching its 50th episode and was still only in the early 1920s. It will be many, many episodes before it reaches the 1930s and 40s heyday of Richard Murdoch, but who better to talk to about a film starring one of the first national radio stars than this radio obsessive? Paul lives out in Guildford and spends much of his time away on tour, so we met online, me under my daughter's bunk bed and he in his shed, to talk about 1948's It Happened in Soho. So here we are. We're here to talk about It Happened in Soho. Not much happens in Soho in the film. But before we get into the film, could you tell me a little bit about your podcast? It's called The British Broadcasting Century. It is. Yeah, this was my lockdown my lockdown project. I'm a stand-up comedian by, by trade. And the gigs went from three gigs a week to three gigs a year. So I thought, I need a hobby. And it turns out, I've always been interested in broadcasting history to a degree, but the pandemic was the push I needed to turn this into some kind of pod project. And uh, it, uh, But the more you delve into these things, I'm sure you find this with the Soho things, that actually the more you delve into it, the more you go, oh, there's a lot we can talk about here. So we've taken 40 episodes to get up to John Reith even joining the BBC or even the existence of the BBC. So there's loads of the pre-BBC story in there as well. We're taking the long way around. It's incredibly, incredibly detailed, isn't it? I mean, you've not even got to Broadcasting House yet. Because I think the what, last one I heard was about the, um, it's called Witten, the place out in Essex. Uh, a Rittle. Ironically, Witten, there was a, a broadcast station at Witten in Birmingham as well. But you probably mean Rittle in Rittle, Essex, that's which right, is yeah. the, more ma- the more major sort of broadcasting hub. Because that was the um, where the first regular British broadcasts came from that really helped create a demand for for radio and people suddenly people going oh this this broadcasting malarkey could last you know and um and then london sort of took over and didn't let it go and still hasn't let it go really i suppose but yeah rickle was a lovely but what was lovely about that is it was this it was middle of nowhere it was a village green and you just got these guys in a hut who could do the whole bletchley park thing of just 
creating and being geniuses, but away from the prying eyes of, um, you know, the uh, more authoritative uh, HQs of London and things like that. So, yeah, the the experimental and crazy broadcasts of Riddle were, I think, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the reason I asked you specifically to do this film is because, well... It's quite a thin, flimsy film. I think you probably agree with me on that. However, the star of the film is Richard Murdoch, Richard Stinker Murdoch, as he was <laughs> called. And he's a very significant person, isn't he, in early BBC history. Even though you're nowhere near that in your podcast, you're still about the five years so you get to to Richard Murdoch. Oh, at least. A, a long <laughs> way. Yeah, I mean, you said we're not even at Broadcasting House yet. We're not even at Savoy Hill yet. You know, we're, we're at the minute, um, 45 episodes in or something, we're at Magnet House, which was this one-room BBC, like an Amish schoolhouse, which they occupied for the first few months. But um, yeah, it will be years yet before we get to Richard Stinker Murdoch, uh, who was part of a very, very popular and successful, and if you chat to people of, a, of, of the right vintage, they will know all about Bandwagon, which was this uh, classic BBC comedy show, which really sort of paved the way, I guess, for everything from the goons, even Morecambe and Wise, because it had really had a comic double act at its heart bandwagon and it's Arthur Askey which many people might be a name people might be familiar with even if it's from the Paul Whitehouse spoof of him on the first show with where's yeah. your washboard and all yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. Uh, hang uh, Arthur Askey, hang uh, Arthur Askey and Richard Stinker Murdoch who was sort of almost a straight man to Arthur Askey but actually was you know as was funnier than many of the funny men of many double acts uh, to come. So, and I mentioned this to my next door neighbour. I said, oh, been uh, listening to a bit of Bandwagon today. And she started straight away, go, oh, Bandwagon, Bandwagon. Yeah, Jones. people do know um, about it, don't they? And there's not many recordings yeah. left of it, is there? I mean, there are, I mean, I've heard a few, but um, I'm the kind of person who would look into that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, they're out there if you find them. But they're, uh, surprisingly, only three seasons were made of Bandwagon, uh, 1938 to 1940. And I guess part of that is the Second World War comes along, but also, you know, other shows come along as well. And um, yeah, Arthur Askey and, and Stinker, Richard Stinker Murdoch did that and they did a, did a film as well. But in the meantime, Richard Murdoch was, he joined the RAF. Uh, he, he fought in the war and, and then, yeah, did some acting after the war as well, including this Fine film. Yes, and um, so Soho. so by the time it happened in Soho came along, he was quite I mean he was in the middle of Much Binding in the Marsh, wasn't he? He was which was his his next big series. So he was a major, major star, relatively yeah. speaking, in, in the UK. It's odd that he's attached to such a kind of lightweight project with I've forgotten the name of the director now. What's his name? Hang on, Frank Chisnell. Right. He's a he's a forgettable director. I think it's Frank yeah. Chisnell. He's a definitely forgettable director, and he only directed four films, as far as I can gather. It seems odd that he managed to get such a big star for such a kind of nothing of a film. Does that strike you as strange? I, I can only imagine that he managed to get him because uh, it was made clearly in about an afternoon and uh, for about five pounds, and uh, well, it's not too long after the era where you get films where they would just crack through them. I was looking up recently about, I had to do an article about Cecil B. DeMille, and you look back in the 1920s and 30s, and they would they'd make hundreds of films a year. And uh, and this one, it happened in Soho, is uh, when in fact, I don't even know it even qualifies as, as feature length um, under modern day rules, because it's sort of under... Uh, under an hour really i i wonder if they could do it by that and you know it's it's clearly filmed in a in a couple of studio sets with a, the occasional 
on location look into into Soho itself, which uh, we can talk about that shortly. But um, but yeah, and I I just wonder if someone like like Richard Murdoch is you know available, and it's in London. It's about, and he does mostly radio things, which are you know you can record a lot quicker. So yeah, it's doable. I think it's not within the realms of uh, possibility that, of course, he just you know is available and gets it. And and this you know the the director as well, Frank Chisnell, as you said, he's made four films none of them particularly notable and i think it's experimental you know and i'm i'm gonna i'll stand up for him briefly you know uh you've got to love a trier and uh <laughs> you know he's had the resources he's made a, f- a few films none of them have lasted none of them are particularly solid bigger budgets came in presumably after but you know fair play fair play you can you can put some stuff on celluloid and uh, and we're still talking about that today for some reason yeah and he actually he made his own production company he had frank chisnell productions his career before filmmaking or film directing was working for movie tone news oh yes and that kind of show there's a sequence in the film where he says to susan let me show you Soho. We'll look at Soho. You look at Soho and I'll observe your reaction to it and write about it from my newspaper. And they just kind of, there's like, there's like a montage sequence when they go around Soho, which is quite interesting in a way, that that, that bit. But it's just as, they just seem to be kind of standing at the sidelines, pointing at people like, oh, look, like they're, like they're in a zoo or something. It's very, very odd. Yeah, you don't feel like you've fully experienced Soho nightlife. They talk about it a bit, and there's the odd sort of, you know, pointing off screen like over there, oh, it's vagabonds and, and, and prostitutes and and crime is rife, and it's all sort of talked about in that sort of tone. And and the brief glimpses we do get of of Soho, which are, you know, mostly filmed by putting a camera in front of a car or top of a double-decker bus whatever and, uh, at about 11 o'clock at night and you can't see it like you've got to squint to go i think i, I think that's a street i'm not yeah. entirely sure <laughs> yeah. um with the classic thing of showing you street names and you go oh old compton street you know but the trouble is you look at the sign and go oh yeah that looks just like it does now because all they've shown me is the sign old compton street and yeah. the sign hasn't changed much so it's not a great glimpse of it but when we got to see the inside of the dog and duck pub for example whether it was a you know a set or whatever there's a, a little immersive moment for a, a for a beat there of what a 1940s london soho pub was like so that was quite although nice. actually i think that when they they show the outside of the dog and duck and then they show the inside of the pub but i think that is actually the french house or as it would have been the york minster because the landlord is um gaston gaston belmont who was the very famous belgian landlord of the french house and it's either him or it's somebody doing an impression of him because um, I suppose he could be representing a type. But uh, yeah, that's a, and that's a bit odd. And then it's and there's a, there's one scene where they're showing these kind of little shots of spivs and artists and and foreign people, the, the, the sort of people who make up the milieu. I hate that word. I'm going to say it again though. The milieu of Soho. And there's a guy, uh, a black guy who has those kind of tribal scars on his cheeks. You kind of see what he's trying to do, but it, none of it really comes off, you know. Yeah, it it doesn't it's a, it doesn't quite work. I mean, you know, the the whole film doesn't really work as a, as a as a film or as a much of an insight, I suppose. But there is the, the little hints there are there. You know, it's it's uh, I suppose shining a bit of a light on on Soho of the day and and you know bits and parts of London of the day as well and it does 
slightly tiptoed down the road of saying, hey, multicultural London and that sort of thing, um, even though major multicultural London was, was yet to come, of course, you know, but it's pre-Windrush. It's just after the Second World War. But it, it's, it is a slightly different sort of London than you know, may, maybe see in other films of the day. Um, the, the films I have seen from this sort of this sort of era are a little bit more um, upper class gentrified and, um, you know, Powell and Pressburger sort of bigger budget certainly i mean every, every film in the world i think has a bigger budget than this one <laughs> so there is that so with what they've done it feels it feels like they it feels like a filmed drama lesson i suppose more than anything and it does give a little little vague insight into those sorts of things they've, they've given it a go to, to shine a bit of a light on on different ethnic cultures and things to a very very small degree you got the you got the owner of the cafe and you know that sort of thing there's that yeah he's sort of missed and he's supposed to be italian but he's I don't know what that accent is supposed to be. It's generic foreign, isn't it? I, it is rather, but, you know, it's Italianish. It, it reminded me of the whole, um, well, the pub, the Dog and Duck pub, and all that reminded me of Goodnight Sweetheart, the Nicholas Lindhurst time travel sitcom. Yeah. Um, a, a little of that slight sense of, uh, of, of, you know, 1940s London to a degree. But, um, yeah. What do you think of Richard Murdoch? Do you like him? Yeah, he's. I think he's, he's a, a solid enough actor and clearly... Um, uh, I mean, he's from a comedy acting background, uh, and he had more comedy to come, as you said, much binding in the marsh, and um, and even I didn't realise this—he was in Blackadder as well. Ah, uh, yes, and this is where I introduced my preloaded audio clip of him saying his line in Blackadder. Here we go. Hope you can hear this. <laughs> I too have heard such tales. In Harrogate, it rained phlegm. Oh. And they do say that in Edinburgh, the graves did open and the ghosts of our ancestors rose up and competed in athletic sports. <laughs> and it's kind of, you can hear his voice, you know. It, it, he always had a slight slur to his voice. When he was in Men from the Ministry, which I know him from, really, originally, he always sounded slightly like he's just had a heavy lunch. He had a slightly kind of slur to his voice. But I, I really, I really like him. I generally, has he has he hasn't this sort of affability that means he gets away with not yeah. being um, an Olivier or a. Well, I, I do. I love these these actors that. Um, oh, these are not just actors, but these these people who span different er- eras. Uh, and and he's gone from the thirties with Arthur Askey, Kenneth Horn with Much Binding in the Marsh. You know, of course, Kenneth Horn went on to do Round the Horn. Men for the Ministries, you say, 60s and 70s. Um, he did a panel show as well um, in the 60s and 70s. You know, all the way through, really, you know, to then some kids' shows, Mr. Majika, which I used to watch growing up as a kid. Yeah. And um, Rumpel and the, the Moomins. Yeah, the Rumpel. Oh, the yeah. Moomins, yeah. Never the Twain and, and Blackadder. Uh, so, That's you know, quite I love a career, it. isn't it? That's quite a career. You've got to applaud that, I think. To let him off uh, this film. <laughs> I think. Yeah, you, well, I was going to say, you always end up with some stinkers on your CV, and yes. Stinker, of course, would have done. Do we? Do you have any idea why it was called Richard Stinker Murdoch? I think, from what I gather, it was uh, it was Arthur Askey who gave him that uh, that nickname, and I think it was really just because he was well, had a public school background, and Arthur Askey was like the pun- he was the guy he was punching up, you know, as uh, as performers often did. Uh, so it was that whole thing of you know, you know, those comic strips that used to. Uh, have those public school nicknames of you know Bodge and Pudge yeah. and Pongo Perkins and uh... Pongo Perkins and all that sort of stuff. So <laughs> Stinker Murdoch was his way, not that he necessarily stank, but just as a way of saying that oh yes, you're from that sort of um, public school toff kind of background, aren't you, Stinker? You know? Yeah. And Bandwagon, I'm not quite 
clear about this, but it may be that you've not got this far in your uh, your meticulous research yet. It has a status of being the first program to be at a regular time slot or something, because it was so popular that people would, you know, there are all these programs that famously cleared all the pubs, like Hancock and whatever, and Bandwagon was the first one to do that, and they, they needed to schedule it so people knew. Is there truth in that, or is that a kind of urban myth? Well, I've read that. I've, I've heard that as well, said about, about Bandwagon. It's tricky. I think they sort of have a point, but you can see going back to the very start, you know, things were scheduled, and it may be, it took a few months in, you know, literally 1923, we're talking here, uh, for there to be much regularity. You know, it would be, be that every night you would hear a concert at the same time at seven o'clock or at eight o'clock, whatever it might be. Um, you'd have the news bulletins at a certain time. You'd have children's hour at a certain time. And actually, it took a good year or two, I think, for them to realise that actually not only do people want regularity for things every night, but actually, there's a benefit to saying, look, if you like, well, like I was going to say jazz, but Reith famously hated jazz and didn't want it on the BBC. But if you like classical music, if you like opera music, if you like a certain type of music, tune in on a Tuesday for that or a Thursday for that. And there was, it took some time, a year or two for that to come into place. So it's a long way of saying, I don't know. But also, there was comedy earlier on the BBC, but this was also really the first. I think of its kind to do comedy in, in quite this way, which was this really fun, boisterous double act between them. And they did have extra cast members as the series went on to series two and series three. But um, this lovely idea that they both lived in a flat at the top of Broadcasting House as well. Which yeah, with his nice. goats and chickens and things. Hi, thank you. What are you doing on this roof? Yes, that's right, Stinker. What are we doing on this gentleman's roof? Well, at the moment, sir, we're preparing breakfast. Are you responsible for that? Oh, no, sir, that's not us. No, you've got the wrong one this time, sir. That's Mrs. Bagwash. Mrs. Bagwash, who's she? The, the woman, woman who comes, comes in to help us with the spring cleaning. Granted. Who are these people? Well, I haven't a card, but I'm big-hearted Arthur, and this is Stinker Murdoch. Yes. We came here for an audition, and they sent us up here and told us to stand by. Yes, and we've been standing by now for three months. Do you mean to say you've been living on this roof for three months? Well, we wanted to be on the spot, sir. <laughs> and what a spot we're on. Take all this rubbish and clear out. Clear out? You mean leave our flat? At once. But we've only just bought a new bed tick. Get out! But what about our audition? If you're not done in half an hour, I'll send for the police. Always be piscatorial. Territorial. Albert Memorial. <laughs> Isn't he a bully? bully? Come on, please. There is, as I feared before this conversation began... There's not a lot to say about the film. We've spoken mostly about Richard Murdoch because he is the star and uh, the most interesting. And actually, why I asked you to come on, because he's a major radio person, as are you. But I believe you have a million things to say about the film. No, I've got about four <laughs> things to say about the film. Oh, four? Well, that's uh, four more than me. Firstly, well, let, let's just say, right, OK, uh, all you need to know about the film is what it says in the title. It happened in Soho. That's it. There you go. That's all that happened. Generally, though, what else do you want to say? Terrible acting. Yes, that's that's in there. But then I'm not judging the actors. I think, they, again, they had no budget, no time, whatever. Um, but straight in, help, police, murder, the first words you hear, you know, that that gives you a little point to sew over the day. There's that. And, you know, the mix of newspaper editor, police, and then generally a lot of drinking cups of tea in cafes and pubs and things. They just change drinks the whole time. Cup of tea in the cafe. Let's go to the pub. There you go. Let's go on a tour of Soho. And repeat, generally speaking, yeah. that's the feeling. That um, um, that policeman at the beginning, he seems to be kind of sitting at his desk with his chin on his hand. The phone rings. Oh, there's been a murder. Yeah, go over to such an address and sort the murder out. 
he puts the phone down and just puts his chin back on his hand. Like, <laughs> <he's> just, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, I, it is what it is, isn't it, really? And I should say, we saw it on, well, I saw it on Talking Pictures. So it may be for those whose interest is piqued by this and thinks, wow, after this rave review, I can't wait to see yeah. what happened in Soho. <laughs> There's every chance it will be repeated on Talking Pictures quite soon. I would definitely watch it, though, again. I mean, I've watched it several times. I'm not going to watch it again for a while. But if, I, you know, I did watch it voluntarily. And I don't regret having watched it because no. it's quite interesting. And you know, enjoy the shoddy production values and wobbly sets, and you know all those things. It's sort of dare I say, it's not good enough to quite pastiche even. But there was one or two moments where it almost looked like a spoof of itself. He's on the phone at the very end, and he has one of those really short phone calls where he just goes, "Yes, oh great, I'll be right there." Hangs up the phone and goes, "Who was it? Well, it was my editor, and he says that if I go over to this street, then there's someone over there, and they've uh, been arrested." for having broken into a building society and uh, his wife has run off with a builder and they've gone and emigrated to the West Indies and whatever it is, I've made that up completely. <laughs> but like, there's no way that all of that information was conveyed in a half second phone call, you know, and yeah. so there were moments that felt like naked gun or airplane or whatever that sort of thing is, you know, but um, that's fun. So are you pleased that I asked you to watch it? I am glad I watched it. So yes, thank you for sending me... I. I Put it this way, there is absolutely no way on earth I would have watched it otherwise. So, no, that's um, true, yeah. There's that. So if people wanted to um, perhaps see you live in the flesh performing on a stage somewhere, where and when might they do that? PaulCarenza.com and click on Gig Guide and you can see I'm all over the place. In fact, most of this year I'm doing some stand-up, but more, more so really I'm on tour doing a recreation of the very first BBC broadcast. Um, so if you want to see how the BBC began... The show's called The First Broadcast, The Battle for the Beeb in 1922. And um, yes, I'm all over the land between now and uh, and November, which is the centenary of the BBC. Uh, And that will be my last show. And that is in London. It's not quite Soho. That will be at the Museum of Comedy, which is um, sort of near Tottenham Court Road. So we're just out, just just east of Soho. Yeah, haven't, didn't you? That sounds like the title of a film, East of Soho. In fact, I think it might be. East of of Java, East of Soho. Yeah. Haven't you done a gig there already in this tour? I did. I missed, uh, yeah, because I wanted to go, but I totally missed it. Yeah, um, well, most most people did miss it, it turns out, so I thought I'd go back in the hope. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, no, no, we had a That's good considerate. Few, yeah, so I did Museum of Comedy a few months ago, but when they offered me a, a, you know, a show there, I thought it would be nice to also do one. Uh, at, to do, I wanted to do a show in some way special on the centenary night, November 14th. Uh, 2022 will be the 100th anniversary of the BBC. So I thought, let's go back. So a date for your diary there. November the 14th, Museum of Comedy, the first broadcast. Details are all on paulcarenza.com and I'll post as many links as I can think of, including one to the full film, because at the time of recording, it's available to watch on TPTV Encore. You'll find all of that on the show notes at sohobitespodcast.com. Many, many thanks to you, Paul Carenza, for coming on the show, and I look forward to seeing you in person at the Museum of Comedy in November. Remember, dear listener, if you want to get in touch with the show to comment, berate, or make suggestions, you can do so on Twitter, on at Soho, or by email on sohobitespodcast at gmail.com. And if you are so inclined, you can leave us a nice review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. And that would be very much appreciated. SohoBytes is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young.
We'll be back next month with another conversation about a film set in Soho. That's all from me. Bye for now. <laughs>